Good morning. I just want to say again, it's been such a pleasure to spend these last few days with you guys and just open up God's Word um, with you. And um, yeah, let's pray that God would continue to work in our midst as we hear from His Word. Father, we thank you for your word, for the stories of one Samuel. Uh, and yeah, it's been such a, such a joy just reflecting with different ones about how your truth uh, impacts us differently when we receive a true narrative as opposed to just true um, propositional statements and how yeah, it, it just hits different uh, emotionally, experientially. Uh, and so we ask, Lord, you be kind to us and do a powerful work yet again in this time together as we consider Abigail and what it is we can learn from her example. Do this for your glory and our joy. In Jesus' name. How dare you! You have stolen my dreams and my childhood with your empty words and yet I'm one of the lucky ones. People are suffering, people are dying Entire ecosystems are collapsing. We're in the beginning of a mass extinction, and all you can talk about is money and fairy tales of eternal economic growth. How dare you? Uh, those were some of the words of uh, Swedish uh, teenage activist Greta Thunberg to world leaders at a United Nations summit. Now, I bring this up not because I'm making a particular point today about climate change or, or creation care, as important as those things are, but I bring this example to help us to get into um, her mindset and her emotions in that moment. How would you think about how, how would you describe how she felt as she gave that speech? Uh, one word I would use uh, to describe it is outrage. And what makes this moment so powerful, this how dare you speech, is the fury and the brutal honesty with which Greta speaks to the leaders of the world. She's speaking as if she is uh, personally offended by the actions, uh, or rather the inaction, of the leaders of the world. Now, I, I raise this as an, as an example because I, I think it perfectly captures an experience that we all share as human beings, right? Um, and that is the feeling of offense. I, I, I would dare say there's not a person alive who has not felt the sting of offense at some point. Maybe some people might be more easily offended than others, a bit more sensitive. And maybe others are a bit harder to offend, a bit more easygoing. Um, but yeah, I think it is a common experience. Uh, I, when I first came to Australia, I spent seven years <coughs> in a charismatic church. And one of the books that was really popular back in, in, in uh, that time was by a pastor called John Bevere. I'm sure many of you heard, heard of him. And he wrote this book called The Bait of Satan, Living Free from the Deadly Trap of Offense. And he writes this, he says, Offense is one of the most deceptive snares that Satan uses to get believers out of the will of God. Most people who are ensnared by the bait of Satan don't even realize it. Don't be fooled. You will encounter offense. 
And it's up to you how it will affect your relationship with God. Your response will determine your future. If offense is handled correctly, you will become stronger rather than bitter. Now, he makes a really good point here, I think. Firstly, because offense in and of itself is not simple. It's not, you're not sinning when you feel offended. Right? It could lead to sin, and often it does. But when we are offended, that moment when we feel offended, it puts us in like a crossroads of sorts. And we have to choose, are we going to respond to this offense with godliness according to the Spirit, or with sinfulness according <coughs> to the flesh? But if offense is not a sin per se, what is it? And I think this category of debate of Satan is a helpful one. Satan is wanting to use offense to lead to sin, to destroy our lives, our relationships with each other, even in, 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 in the family of God, our, our families, our careers, our walk with God and our ministry. And this is exactly what you see here in today's story. And what I want to show us um, this, this morning is how deadly and destructive this bait of Satan can be. How offense is the thing, actually, that nearly ruined David's path to kingship, that seemingly sure path. This was actually the most deadliest trap of Satan that almost derailed him. And on the flip side, how David is actually saved by an amazing woman called Abigail. I think under-celebrate what she does in this story. It is her wisdom, amazing wisdom that she displays in the face of hostility that brings salvation and blessing. So I'm gonna, so my three points are framed around the three characters in the story. So firstly, Naval, who shows hostility instead of hospitality. Uh, we see David showing retribution instead of forgiveness. And then finally, Abigail, who shows wisdom in the face of hostility. Well, let's begin with Nabal, who showed hostility instead of hospitality. So we know that Nabal is a rich man, right? He's a wealthy landowner. I imagine if today maybe the owner of a large multinational company like a, a Bill Gates or Jeff Bezos, uh, but, but somehow he chose to live in a, a really small town in the middle of nowhere instead of a major city. He would, of course, be the most prominent, the most powerful man in the area because of his wealth and his stature. But we're told here that he's not only rich, he's also harsh and evil. And we're told as well that Chris shared even in the story uh, for the kids before that Nabal means fool. And that doesn't seem to bother him very much that his name means fool because he's a really successful fool. <laughs> and he's contrasted with his wife, Abigail, right? It's an interesting, odd pairing, who is said to be both intelligent and beautiful. Right? Those are the two traits, and, and also Chris brought that out in his Duplo reenactment. Uh, the original Hebrew says something like she has good sense. That's the, uh, the 
the meaning of, of wisdom, and the wordplay bringing in contrast the, the good sense of Abigail and the evil of a husband, Nabal. Now, David comes to Nabal during sheep shearing season. Now, this is a festive period. So, similar to if you rocked up uh, during Christmas to someone's house, or in someone's uh, in, in, to someone's area, or. and so they're having like a big public celebration. Imagine massive celebration, and David basically sees all that happening, and he says, "You know, he sends some men to ask, hey, can we join? Since you're having this massive celebration anyway, is it okay if you know we would, 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 would it be okay for us to have a bit of food for our men, whatever you can spare?" And David was very respectful. He he points out, you know, like he he and his men had. Uh, you know, not, uh, did not harass Nabal's shepherds yet. Uh, in fact, from the shepherd's own words in verses 15 and 16, that David and his men, he kind of undersells what he's done, really, because he's not only not harassed them, he's actually protected them, right? So out in the wild, you know, shepherds and their flocks might face threats from wild animals, right? David killed the lion and the bear, uh, thieves or thugs. But instead, David and his men uh, are like a shield, a wall around the, the uh, Nabal's Sheep shearers and sheep. But instead, how does Nabal respond? You see in verse 10, Nabal asked them, Who is David? Who is Jesse's son? Many slaves these days are running away from their masters. Am I supposed to take my bread, my water, and my meat, like push it from my shearers, and give them to these men? I don't know where they're from. So instead of showing hospitality to David and his men, Nabal showed them hostility. He mocked David by calling him a runaway slave and treats him with disrespect. I think it's actually highly unlikely that Nabal does not know who David is since his name was well known throughout the land at this point. Remember, he's killed, he's killed Goliath, right? He's a, he's a national hero. He's saved the nation from the Philistines. Everyone knows who David is. And so, what we can conclude is he's not honestly saying, oh, I don't know who this guy is. He's actually intentionally mocking it. And so as we reflect on this, um, on this point of, of this contrast between uh, hostility and hospitality, maybe take a moment to reflect on Soma as a church. So, one thing about Soma uh, is that you are a church that is marked by hospitality instead of hostility. This is one of your strengths, right? This is one of the things that make you uh, stand out as a church. But maybe it's helpful from time to time to also reflect on how might we, um, how might we be more intentionally, intentional rather, with our hospitality? Um, how, how might you show in particular hospitality uh, to those who cannot repay you, as Jesus says in, in, in so just just a, a, a little point of application to think about. But I want to turn our attention from Nabal to David, who responds to this hostility with retribution instead of forgiveness. So let's look at verse 12. It says, David's young men retraced their steps. And when they returned to him, they reported all these words. He said to them, all of you put on your swords. So each man put on his sword, and David also put on his sword. About 400 men followed David, or 200 stayed 
with the supplies. Now I want to, to kind of give us a bit of context because um, you know, unfortunately I can only do three sermons, so I can't do all the, the whole of one Samuel. But right, the story right before this story, uh, it's important to real, realize what's happened there. So in the previous story, when David was being hounded by Saul, his reaction was actually the complete opposite. One chapter ago, his reaction is the complete opposite of what we see here. Which is really interesting, because both Nabal and Saul had offended David. Right, Saul was, remember, he was, you heard from even from yesterday's Jonathan sermon, right, out to kill him, out to assassinate him. Um, <clears throat> the, you know, Nabal here was hostile with his words, with his refusal, refusal of hospitality, whereas Saul was hostile in trying to spear him to death and kill him in a hundred different ways. And yet, David's response is completely opposite. Let me just read um, uh, uh, one verse that captures this, right? With Saul, David says this in verse 12, the previous chapter. May the Lord judge between me and you, and may the Lord take vengeance on you for me, but my hand will never be against you. That was his response in a very similar scenario, even kind of with a harsher threat of death than here. And with Nabal, David doesn't really really involve God at all. You know, he's basically saying, instead of how he responded to Saul, he's basically said, said responds here by saying, basically, I have judged between you and me, and I will take vengeance on you, and my hand will always be upon you. Right? It's the, it's the direct opposite of how he responded to Saul. Now, I don't often use the, <coughs> the King James Version, but on this occasion, uh, it preserves the fury and the crudeness of David's curse on Nabal from the original Hebrew. Let me read it for us. It says this. Now, David had said, Surely in vain have I kept all that this fellow hath in the wilderness, so that nothing was missed of all that pertained unto him, and he had requited me evil for good, so and more also do God unto the enemies of David, if I leave of all that pertain to him by morning light, any that pisseth against the wall. Now if you're struggling with the old English, let me try and make this clear for you. David is saying, I am going to kill every single person in Nabal's family that pisses while standing up. Right? That's what he's saying. <laughs> The other uh, English translations kind of soften the force of this crudeness. Um, maybe for the kids, I don't know. Like, like, I mean, most English translations say, I'm going to kill all the males in the Baal's household. It doesn't quite have the same ring to it, the same crudeness, the same, you know, force to it. Eh? Now, why is it that David responds so differently to the Baal compared to Saul? Now, remember how David is the one asking all of his men to calm down, don't kill Saul like in the last story he said, he's the one telling all of his men, they all want to, to attack and he's saying calm down guys, don't kill Saul he, he, um, and, and one reason is that Saul is the Lord's anointed while Nabal is not, well fair enough fair enough, but could it also be that David actually doesn't have much respect for Nabal 
I mean, he is, as he knows himself, the anointed future king of Israel. We can see from Abigail's words later on in her response that pretty much everyone in Israel knows this. It's an open secret. So it's one thing for God's anointed, the current king, to disrespect him, but it's another thing for some wealthy landowner in the middle of nowhere to disrespect him. Now think about it. If it was just a matter of getting food for his men, then surely they could have just moved on and just looked for food somewhere else. It's not like they were in a famine or something like that where there was a lack of food. But it is clear that David was offended, right? He was incensed. He was outraged at the disrespect on his name, right? How dare you? That's David in that moment. So what about you? Maybe think back to the last time you felt offended. When the base of Satan was laid before you. How did you respond in that instance? I think that our human fleshly response, our natural instinctive response, is retribution. Right? We want to get even. But the divine response is forgiveness. Proverbs 19.11 says, A person's wisdom yields patience. It is to one's glory to overlook an offense. Easy to say, much harder to do. So, as David then charges forward, ready to kill every last male in retribution for the disrespect, he is met by Abigail, who acts with wisdom in the face of hostility. I'm going to focus a lot more time on Abigail. Now, Abigail could just be possibly my favorite female character in the whole Bible. In Christian circles, we often talk about the Proverbs 31 woman, right? As the perfect example of what a woman is meant to be. Well, I think Abigail is a pretty good example of a Proverbs 31 woman. So pay attention today. If you are a woman, here's a, a great example of a godly woman to aspire to. And if you're a man, this is what you should be desiring in a godly woman. So one of uh, Nabal's servants hears what David said to David. Sorry, what uh, Nabal said to David's men and immediately goes to Abigail. And he, know, and he knows uh, so she knows that this is not only unfair and disrespectful towards David, but Nabal could be bringing retribution upon himself, upon his household. And so when she hears about this, she jumps into action straight away, and her immediate response is to bring a substantial supply of food for David and his men as a gift. And when she meets David, you can see in this, in this picture, right? 
she kneels with her face to the ground and pays homage to David. And then really importantly, she gives her speech. This is a really important thing to analyze, is Abigail's speech. Um, some, some scholars, Old Testament scholars, that say that Abigail's speech is a masterpiece in negotiation and persuasion. So look, look at what she does, right? She begins by taking the blame. Keep your Bibles open in front of you. I'll be referring to it as we go along. So look at verse 24. She begins by taking the blame. The guilt is mine, she says. So what, what exactly is she guilty of? Is she even guilty? Well, she says she, she didn't see David's men who, who came to Nabal. And then she quickly condemns her own husband for his stupidity. Uh, 20, verse 25, My Lord should pay no attention to this worthless fool, Nabal, for he lives up to his name. His name means stupid, and stupidity is all he knows. Uh, that's pretty, pretty brutal, if you ask me. And then she makes a rather bold statement in verse 26. She says, Now my Lord, as surely as the Lord lives and you yourself live, it is the Lord who kept you from participating in bloodshed and avenging yourself by your own hand. May your enemies and those who intend to harm my Lord be like Nabal. What's she, what's she saying in that, this verse? Like, why is it so bold? She's basically telling David, David, you're about to do something really dumb. But in a super polite and honoring way. It's, it's genius. Honestly. Right? It's a bad look for the future king of Israel. He's the future, he's the, he's the King-elect, right, is the future king of Israel. Is a, how bad does it look for the, the, the person who's about to be enthroned to, be, to have gone out and slaughtered his own people, his own citizens, right before he's enthroned, right? And she's so confident in the argument that she equates her action, because she's the one that goes to him to stop him, right? She equates her action of stopping David as the Lord stopping David, participating in bloodshed. That's the level of confidence that she has. Verse 28, Please forgive your servant's offense, for the Lord is certain to make a lasting dynasty for my Lord, because he fights the Lord's battles. Throughout your life, may evil not be found in you. Right? She affirms the Lord's anointing upon David. You are the future king. And, and what, what a wonderful thing to wish upon someone. May evil not be found in you. And she then says, My Lord's life is tucked safely in the place where the Lord your God protects the living, but he is flinging away your enemies' lives like stones from a sling. Again, really, for, for, the, for the poets out there, right? Really poetic really artistic use of the imagery of the sling, which of course is what David used to kill the lion. It's a creative way to further honor David. And then verse 30, when the Lord does for my Lord all the good he promised you and appoints you ruler of Israel, 
There will not be remorse or a troubled conscience for my Lord because of needless bloodshed or my Lord's revenge. And when the Lord does good things for my Lord, may you remember me, your servant. So there are some scholars out there who question the purity of Abigail's motives here. You know, she's stuck in this loveless marriage to an obnoxious husband. Is she, you know, secretly trying to entice David to be her husband? Is she hinting to David, right, uh, that she will kill Nabal on David's behalf so that he can keep his hands clean for his own political benefit? These are all things that scholars suggest, right? Now, I don't think so at all. I think that these guys are all wrong. Now, no doubt, she's also motivated by her self-preservation. She doesn't want her household to be destroyed like her kids, right? And she has no idea that David has vowed to kill only men. She doesn't know what he's, he's vowed to do. And she's also taking a risk by confronting David herself. She's putting herself in the line of fire, right? She has no guarantee that she herself won't get killed. What's to say David doesn't just spear her straight away? Now remember that just, uh, again, uh, three chapters earlier, and uh, if you look back into the story, we find that this guy called Doeg the Edomite killed everyone in a place called Nob, men and women, uh, infants and nursing babies. So I think we can say confidently, Abigail was motivated by some level of, of self-preservation, but she was also motivated by her loyalty to David and wanting to prevent the Lord's anointed from tarnishing his own name before he even ascends the throne. Verse 32 now. Let's look at what David says. Then David said to Abigail, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel who sent you to meet me today. May your discernment be blessed and may you be blessed. Today you kept me from participating in bloodshed and avenging myself by my own hand. Now this is a pretty big deal. This is a pretty big deal because David, the king in waiting, basically admits publicly, this is a public scene, right? She comes in front of, in front of all hundreds of men and he says these words, basically admitting that he was wrong and he was foolish and instead, a woman was wiser and more intelligent than he was. That's what he's saying, basically. Dale Ralph uh, Davis, a uh, scholar, writes, Through Abigail, the Lord saves David from a danger different from that in the cave with Saul, but nonetheless great. David taking matters into his own hand and thus making himself master of his fate instead of letting it be guided by the Lord. In other words, the Lord saves his servants from their own stupidity. And again, I'm saying it from experience. <laughs> the Lord has certainly saved me from the consequences of my own stupidity many times. But Davis makes a, a fantastic point here. And that is the danger of sin, of this bait, the bait of Satan, is just as great as the danger of death from the spear of Saul. And we just think, you know, um, we've just come out, it feels like we're almost done with this pandemic or threat of COVID, etc., etc. And you just think back to that, that time, those two years, right? There's so many precautions were taken. 
social distancing, wearing a mask, washing our hands, not leaving a house, uh, un unless it falls into one of the approved reasons. And why, why was all of that done? Because we were trying to preserve life. We recognize the danger of death. But what precautions are we taking to protect ourselves from the danger of sin? Are we devoting ourselves to reading the Word of God daily? Are we devoting our time to encountering God in prayer, alone with prayer and also with others? Do we make it a point to confess our sins to one another, as it says in James, to our fellow brothers and sisters? Do we allow people, do we welcome people to input into our lives, even rebuke us when we have done something wrong? Is that allowed here? Let's take the danger of sin as seriously as the danger of death. Now let's think about this example again of Abigail as a godly woman. And when she refers to herself as David's servant in a speech, she's actually using a feminine word. King James Version captures the literal meaning by uh, using the word handmaid, as she refers to herself. Uh, Joyce Baldwin is a great uh, British Old Testament scholar, and she, and she writes this. Though she speaks as a handmaid to her Lord, <coughs> Abigail is the master of this situation. And that's a great summary. And she also writes, <coughs> It is easy to see in Abigail how a woman's gifts may effectively be used in negotiation and in diffusing a dangerous situation. In other words, of course it helped that she was pretty, right? But in the Abigail story, we see what I think is a helpful, nuanced view of female beauty. Now on one hand, it does acknowledge that yes, there is such a thing, there's such a category that exists as feminine beauty, a form of beauty unique to women. We shouldn't be trying to get women to look like men. And we don't, uh, and, and we shouldn't just undervalue, pretend it doesn't exist, right? If natural beauty, good, praise God. But on the other hand, we don't overvalue it, right? Abigail's godliness is not found in her physical beauty, but in the beauty of her wisdom and the beauty of her character. She fights for the good of the Lord's anointed. She fights to protect the lives of her household. And she provides the hospitality that her husband failed to provide. And more than that, she even puts, she's willing to put herself in harm's way for the good of others. She's wise, decisive, compassionate, shows good leadership, and ultimately she is motivated by the glory of God. That's what a godly woman looks like. And, <clears throat> and I have a sneaky fourth point. You know, like the bonus track, the hidden track at the end of the album? And that's this. As David is transformed by the wisdom of Abigail, we see ultimately that God brings 
vindication instead of injustice. What do I mean by that? So let's look. So this is the end of the story, which we didn't have in the Bible already. So at the end of the story, we see that Nabal is getting absolutely smashed, absolutely hammered, plastered, whatever. He's totally drunk. <clears throat> and Abigail then waits until he is sober to tell him what had happened and how they had so nearly been massacred. <laughs> and he immediately gets a heart attack and he is dead in 10 days. Now, it doesn't just say that Nabal dies, right? It says the Lord struck Nabal dead. And that's exactly how David interprets it. Verse 39, <clears throat> when David heard that Nabal was dead, he said, blessed be the Lord, who championed my cause against Nabal's insults and restrained his servant from doing evil. The Lord brought Nabal's evil deeds back on his own head. Then of course David goes and marries Abigail, and here there's our happy ending. But if we can connect all the key points together, we can say, <clears throat> the reason it is wise, instead of foolish, to respond to hostility, when we receive hostility instead of hospitality, with forgiveness instead of retribution, is because we serve a God of vindication, not injustice. I take, take a moment to, to see how those things connect, right? I say again, the reason is wise instead of foolish to respond when we receive hostility instead of hospitality with forgiveness instead of retribution is because we serve a God of vindication, not injustice. So what I, what I mean when I say we serve a God of vindication? Two verses, Psalm 135, 14. For the Lord will vindicate his people and have compassion on his servants. Psalm 25, 3. No one who waits for you will be disgraced. Those who act treacherously without cause will be disgraced. So we have seen, right, <clears throat> how offense is the bait of Satan, right? And, and, yeah, and how hard it is actually in our flesh to choose forgiveness instead of retribution. So many times, even though we might know that it's foolish, we fall into the devil's trap anyway. So how do we find the power to resist this bait of Satan and kill our sinful desires? And the answer is to look to our Lord Jesus Christ. So uh, I'm, re I'm really big on, on Christ-centered preaching. I don't know if you realize this. In every sermon, I've got this slide, same slide, pointing us to Christ. <clears throat> I want to answer this question, right? What's the pathway to Christ in our story? I think every story has a different pathway to get to Jesus. And I want to ask this question. Can a woman <coughs> ever be a Christ figure? When we think of David as a Christ figure, right? We can think of Moses as a Christ figure. Can a woman be a Christ figure? Now, some scholars would, would say, no, surely not. But I would say, why not? Who else could it be? In this story, the other characters, both of the men, are acting like fools. Not just Nabal, David is also acting like a fool, right? One is a hostile fool, one's a retributive fool. They're both fools. And you see, this is what makes Abigail so special. Not only is she an exemplar of godly womanhood, she's also 
one who shows us what it looks like to have Christ-like character. You see, Abigail, right, as I said before, she's the one who puts herself in harm's way for her household and for David. She's doing it for David as well. And in the same way, Christ put himself in harm's way for his household. And who's his household? All those who put their trust in him. Abigail put herself in the way of David's fury against the evil of Nabal. But Jesus put himself in the way of God's righteous fury against the sin of his people. Abigail, who remember, she was completely innocent, took the guilt upon herself so that righteousness may prevail. And Christ, who was completely innocent, took the guilt upon himself so that righteousness might prevail. Abigail was the mediator between David and Nabal, or David and, and her household. And yet Christ is the greater mediator between God and humanity. Colossians 2, 14 and 15 says this, He erased the certificate of debt with its obligations that was against us and, and opposed to us and has taken it away by nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and disgraced them publicly. He triumphed over them in him. So how can we avoid the, the bait of Satan and respond to offense with forgiveness, a wise response? Well, we must remember that we ourselves, we are the great offenders. In the millions of ways that we have sinned, we have offended our Lord. And yet He erased the certificate of debt that we owe Him. Jesus took it away by nailing it on a cross. And we ourselves are recipients of divine forgiveness. And Jesus also disarmed all His enemies and disgrace them publicly, triumphing over them. And those who trust in Him will share, not just in the forgiveness, but in the triumph, in the, in the vindication. And if we see both of these great realities, firstly, that we are the, the great offenders, but also that we are, are, are those who have been forgiven, and we are the ones who are also the vindicated ones. Right? God has vindicated us. He will vindicate us on that last day. If we really believe that, then we can put aside our human fleshly desire to vindicate ourselves in petty quarrels that we have from time to time. For we have already received the ultimate vindication in Christ. So let us pray daily as our Lord Jesus us. Forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we, we thank you for such a, a rich story. It reminds us of uh, the importance of hospitality, but also makes clear to us the dangerous bait of Satan, the way that Satan destroys families, 
churches, ministries, communities through this through this bait of offense. Because Lord, you know that we see, you know that so often we don't need to, we just end up offending others. We step on people's toes. But Father, we thank you for Abigail, who embodies wisdom for us, who embodies a, a Proverbs 31 woman for us. So Father, I pray for every woman in Soma, I pray for every young girl in this church. All that they would be women of God, that all these young girls would grow up to be godly women, to be Abigails, who show by their wisdom, in contrast to the foolishness of this world, what it means to be a woman. And Father, we, we ask that you would help us all be like Abigail, who points us ultimately to our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To see that we ourselves are offenders, even in all those times that we have been offended. But how you treat us, Lord, that you don't hold our offense towards you against us, but in Christ you have given us forgiveness. And even when we have been oppressed or being um, abused or, 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 or being mistreated, and it seems like our, our, our opponent, our enemy, our, our the person who has who has, who has um, mistreated us has triumphed. Help us to remember that you have vindicated us already, and that on that last day you will vindicate us publicly and put to shame any who would seek to disgrace us. Help us live out of that reality, so that we can be people marked by our forgiveness. People might call us naive, people might call us stupid for forgiving people. But we are a cross-shaped community, a gospel-shaped community that forgives just as Christ has forgiven us. Help us live that out day by day as we are conformed to the image of our beloved Jesus. In his name.